Turn with me this evening to Psalm 22, please. It's the cross. The cross awaits us tomorrow. So much of a symbol of believers, so much part of our lives, and without it there would be no shedding of blood, no atonement, no death of the Son of God. A faith without the cross is just like a faith without the empty tomb. It's powerless. It's without authority. It has no substance to it. Isn't it strange that there's, in the Christian life, there's no power until you give it all up. There's no strength until you become weak. And there's no hope until you see your Savior die. Now this was the plan all along from our Heavenly Father, from before the foundations of the earth were laid, when there was only the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together, they are eternal, they are one, they are three. It was agreed that the way of forgiveness, the way of restoration, the way of salvation for the creation of the Father would be the atoning blood of the Son. It was his work that would pay our price. That was the plan from the very beginning. From the very first sin, we see that the shedding of blood was integral to the atonement, integral to the forgiveness that was required. Adam and Eve in the garden, when they sinned, there was shame involved. So the Lord provided for them skins to cover their nakedness. Where did the Lord get the skins? Animals had to give their life. So began a perfect and ongoing, an imperfect and ongoing pattern of the shedding of blood for the temporary atonement, the temporary covering of our sins. And we see throughout the Old Testament that that had to be repeated again and again and again because it was never the perfect sacrifice. Not until there was found the perfect sacrifice, not until the Lord himself provided that sacrifice, that perfect spotless lamb of God, was there no longer a need for any other sacrifice. And that's why we are here. Now, I think we can live with the idea that a perfect God would choose his way of saving his creation. He can do it in whatever way he wants to. Remember, God is not bound by time. He is not bound by the the same parameters uh, of existence that affect us. He is outside of those things. He created them. But what about a man who a thousand years before the crucifixion of the Son of God and 300 years before crucifixion was ever even thought of or conceived by a human mind, what about somebody there writing that the Messiah, the perfect sacrifice, would give his life and would describe the crucifixion death in great detail? A thousand years before it would happen. 300 years before crucifixion was ever even thought of in the mind of man. We read from Isaiah. It's the same thing. It describes the type of death that our Lord would die on the cross. Crucifixion arose out of a means of torture, probably from the Medes or the Persians in the east. Alexander seems to have taken it on as a form of execution, and the Romans, as they were so good, perfected it and knew how to draw it out and knew how to get the the, the utmost of suffering from the victim before they would succumb. Remember, crucifixion is a death by suffocation. Crucifixion is a death by suffocation. 
All the things that go into it are bad. All the things that lead up to it go to weaken the body, the beatings, uh, the, the scourgings, the, uh, you know, the being out in the open. It was all part of that. But in the end, as the individual hung on the cross and their strength either gave out or the Roman guards would come and break the legs, they could no longer push up and get a breath. So they would die from suffocation. It was brutal. It was torturous. It was humiliating. And yet we see it written of here in Psalm 22. Let me read from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet thou art holy. O thou who art enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In thee our fathers trusted. They trusted and thou didst deliver them. To thee they cried out and were delivered. In thee they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb. Thou didst make me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Thou dost lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them. and For my clothing they cast lots. But thou, O Lord, be not far off. O thou, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Thou dost answer me. I will tell of thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise thee. Now, from all evidence that we can find, David had no idea that he was writing in a prophetic fashion about the death of the Messiah, that his words and his description would match that of something yet to be discovered 300 years down the road. Now, in the context, David is obviously facing something very difficult here. Perhaps he's facing uh, one of those times when, when Saul is, is chasing him through the, through the mountains and he, he and his men are hiding in caves. Maybe it's that type of struggle that he's in. But on the other level, we have to understand that this refers to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So, and really, to understand what Psalm 22 is, we, we kind of have to leave David and go to Christ. 
We have to leave whatever struggle David is describing because it's not made clear to us, but we know that Christ from the cross quotes from here and the events that we see here in Psalm 22 are played out for us in, in the death of Christ and in those around him. So we see in the first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus was crucified, darkness fell upon the land from noon until three. And Jesus cried out these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. No one can really know what was involved in God's forsaking of his son at that time. So we have to understand that for all eternity, Jesus had experienced perfect union with the Father. They were of the same substance and the same essence. There was, they were never out of fellowship, never out of communion. And somehow here the spotless Lamb of God who knew no sin cries out to the Lord, Why have you forsaken me? Why did the Lord in his holiness turn his back upon his son in that moment? Was it the fact that he bore the weight of sin of all humanity upon his person at that time? And the father could not look upon it at that time? We understand the physical agony of a crucifixion was terrible. But imagine the spiritual agony. The son of God is forsaken by the father. The weight of our sin is laid upon him. And he takes it willingly. He bears it willingly. There on the cross, in that moment, he became sin for us so that we might know his righteousness. So the righteousness of Christ might be imputed into us. We have none of our own. We have nothing but sin. And here comes the work of Christ in our lives. And it is given to us by the Father. After three hours of darkness imposed by the Father, it is now the ninth hour. If you remember from last Sunday, that makes it about three o'clock. And what happens at three o'clock on this particular day in Jerusalem? That's when the lambs begin to be sacrificed. Those lambs that were taken into the homes of the people. As Christ entered Jerusalem, that's the day where the lambs were taken in and they were to keep the lambs with them in their homes. And then on this day, between three and twilight, the lambs were to be sacrificed. So not only does he ask the Father, why have you forsaken me? But he was despised and he was mocked. Look at verse 6. He says, but I am but, what, a worm and not a man. Now, a worm is an object of weakness and of scorn, something that is, is ugly and, and, and detestable. Now, we read from Isaiah 53 about his, his features, and, and they, were, uh, they had no form, no comeliness that we should be attracted to him. He calls himself a worm. David calls himself a worm, and, and we see how this applies to Jesus very clearly. It's a particular type of worm. Its technical name is Kermes or Milio, but its common name is a cochineal. It's an insect from which a scarlet dye is extracted. Now, the Hebrew word for worm is toloth, and if you follow the word throughout the Old Testament, sometimes it is translated as worm, and sometimes that same word is translated as crimson. 
in Isaiah and Exodus, it is translated as crimson as an example. Here, it is translated as worm. Now, why would the same word be used for worm and crimson? They seem to have no connection to one another, except that this worm was known as the crimson worm or the scarlet worm. Because when you would crush it, this red, scarlet, this crimson fluid would come out. It wasn't blood. It was used to make a dye for clothing. When it was crushed, there came this thick, scarlet-covered, scarlet-colored fluid from this worm. Or when the mother worm was about to give birth, it would connect itself to a tree trunk or a tree branch. And in giving birth, it would also give its life. And in the last breath that it would take in the worm's life, it would extract this red fluid and it would stain the tree upon which it died. What better example of the work of Christ? When he says, I am but a worm, yes, he is, he is detestable, he is insignificant, but he is also that worm which stains the tree with his own blood. And not only did he just stain the tree, not only did he give his life, but that is the blood that cleanses us. We cannot be cleansed of our sin unless we are washed in his very own blood. I read earlier from Isaiah 52. It says, His visage, his face was so marred, more than that of any man, his form more than the sons of men. There was no beauty, Isaiah 53, in him that men should desire. They had beaten him. They had crippled his body. They had crushed a crown of thorns upon his head. They spitted him. They slapped him. They pulled his beard out. He was despised and he was rejected and he was scorned. Verse 7, all who see me sneer at me. They mock me. They wag with their lip and with their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. These are the exact actions of Jesus' enemies as they cursed him, as they made fun of him, as they mocked him as he hung there on the cross. They mocked his claims of trust in the Lord. They said, well, if you're God, then come down off the cross. Then maybe we'll believe. They wouldn't have believed. They had seen his miracles. They had heard his words, yet they did not believe. There was nothing that could have drawn their hearts to that man on the cross. Their hearts were hardened. And every bit of our human wisdom screams that this guy who's hanging on the cross is cursed. That he is outside of the norm. He is a fake. He is a usurper. He trusts in a God that can't get him off the cross. Yet Christ was not shaken. Look at verse 9. He talks to his father. He says, yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb. Thou didst make me trust when upon my mother's breast. He goes back to that unique moment of his conception when he left the right hand of the Father and in the incarnation took on the form of a human through the virgin birth of Mary. He says, God, you brought me into this world. You prepared a body for me. Now, verse 11, but now be not far from me. He still looks to the Father. He still longs for the Father. And why does he say, be not far from me? He says, for trouble is near. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Now, there are bulls of Bashan. 
That is a particular geographic region. It was known for its lush pasture land, and in this lush pasture land grew these very large bulls, largest in, in the known area at that time. But they were not domesticated. They ran free. And oftentimes it was assumed that because they ran free and they were so large that spirits had come into these bulls. And in that area of Bashan, uh, north of, uh, of Israel, it was assumed that these spirits would then inhabit some of the people. So when Jesus says, these bulls have surrounded me, the strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me, as he looks out around those around him on, as he hangs on the cross, I can only think that perhaps he sees some sort of demonic horde that is there. And what's it say? They open wide their mouth at me as a raving, ravening and a roaring lion. And there they are surrounding him and going, ah, this is our day. This is the day we have waited for, for millennia. This is the day when God is overcome, when he is defeated. This is our day of victory. We've got Christ, the Son of God, on the cross, and we are going to kill him. And they are crying out with joy in their demonic hearts. See, maybe that's why Paul in Colossians tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he triumphed over the host of demons. Peter tells us the same thing, that when Christ went and proclaimed to the demons in the darkest hell, remember when we studied Jude? Those demons who were locked away as a result of their actions back in, in the early parts of Genesis, in the darkest and the deepest parts of hell, Jesus goes down and proclaims to them, I am the Son of God, and I have overcome death. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, He destroyed him who had the power of death, while hell and all its hosts thought it was their great day. But Jesus bruised the head of Satan. Remember, in the early part of Genesis, it says he will bruise your, his heel, but he will bruise his head. He has crushed the head of Satan by overcoming death. Verses 14 through 18 really lay out for us what it is like as, to the individual in the midst of a crucifixion. It is laid out here prophetically for us. Okay, this is David's description. It goes far beyond his own experience. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax and is melted. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd was this little piece of pottery. If you broke it in your house or if you're the potter and you don't like it and you break it and you throw it outside and it dries in the sun and it begins to really flake apart and, and, and become very crusty and very hard and dry. He said, this is the way that he feels at this point, cracked and crinkled and dried. He says, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Imagine he hasn't had water and, and he's lost the fluid from his, the loss of blood and he hangs out in the Middle East sun. He says, I have nothing to drink. I'm here in the dust of death. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And David had no idea what a crucifixion was, but God was giving him a picture of what the Messiah would go through. You remailed him. You remember they nailed him on his hands and on his feet. We see this in the passage in Isaiah that we read. It's also in Zechariah chapter twelve, the same type of thing. 
They divided my garments and cast lots for my clothing. You remember, that's very clear. They gambled for his coat. Now, the coat was a very special thing in the life of an individual in the New Testament times, an individual man, because that was the last thing uh, that, that you could take from him for assurance as, as a loan. And if he gave you his cloak so that um, as, as surety for a loan, you had to give it back to him every night so that he would have a blanket, so that he would have a bed. That's what it was used for in the evening. And a prayer comes to our, prayer comes to our climax here in 19. But thou, O Lord, be not far off. O thou, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Thou dost answer me. There must have been something here in the heart of the Lord. Something here that has changed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now it comes back, but thou, Lord, be not far off. You are my help. I will tell of thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Now, how should we respond to the suffering that Christ has gone through for you and I to pay for our sin? We should see both the greatness of our own sin and the greatness of the love that the Lord has for us. Remember, it is my sin that put Christ on the cross. It is your sin that put Christ on the cross. And it is his death. It took his death to pay for my sin alone let alone everybody's sin. That's how bad the sin is. And we put him there. Rembrandt, the Dutch painter, painted a very famous picture of the crucifixion scene. And, of course, the, 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 the emphasis is upon Christ on the cross. But if you look down in the corner, right down the shadows, in the crowd, there's Rembrandt's face. And he said, I had to put myself in the picture because I put Christ on the cross. It was my sin that put him there. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that's lesser known of John Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace, and we all know that one. But this one is called, In Evil Long I Took Delight. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt. It plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilled and helped to nail him there. The second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that thou might live. I do believe, I now believe, that Jesus died for me. And through his blood, his precious blood, I've been from sin set free.